Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Realm presents The Witch Who Came In From The Cold, Season 1, Episode 18. Four. It wasn't strictly necessary to have the conference room swept for bugs. The monthly sweep of the embassy had been completed only four days before. But when it came to Anchises, Gabe wasn't taking any chances. When the tech crew finally declared the area clear, packed away their arcane electronic gear, and left, he turned to Frank. It's all yours, sir. Thanks. Frank went to the door. You can come in now. The man who entered reminded Gabe of nothing so much as a bantam rooster. Compact but tough. He didn't so much walk as strut. His dark brown eyes glittered with energy. Could that possibly be an American flag pin in his lapel? By God, it was. Inwardly, Gabe groaned. Boys, this is Dominic Alvarez. He's going to be overseeing Anchises. You must be Gabriel. Obviously, that makes you Joshua. Alvarez's handshake was strong, fast, efficient. Pump down, pull up, release. Sit down, both of you. I've got something to say before we start. He did not sit down himself. He seemed to be too full of nervous energy for that. Everybody has a hobby. Some men collect stamps, others collect blondes. There are people who write poetry, climb mountains, fire guns at paper targets. My hobby is history. Now, I could spend my time refighting the Battle of Waterloo or trying to figure out a way the South could have won the Civil War. Worthy studies, both of them. But my passion is the Bay of Pigs invasion, the most perfect military failure in American history. How did it happen? What lessons can we learn from it? How can we keep from ever doing that again? Oh, great. 
Dominic was not only a by-jingo bourbon and branchwater flag thumper, but an armchair general to boot. This was going to be one long afternoon. Alvarez charged on, warming to his subject. Now, there were a lot of reasons for the fiasco. The training camps in Guatemala were an open secret. Boats sank on coral reefs that weren't on maps. The B-26s arrived late, which is why a couple of them were downed by friendly fire. You didn't hear that from me, incidentally. A hundred little snafus went into making the Bay of Pigs invasion the sublime fuck-up that it was. But they all boiled down to one thing. We got cute. What we should have done was go in with everything we had, the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force. We would have been in Havana by nightfall, and Castro would be folding laundry in Leavenworth now. Alvarez paced briskly back and forth as he talked, stopping in his tracks whenever he paused for emphasis. Now, to Anchises, a Soviet scientist wants to defect. We want to help him do so. There are two ways the extraction can be handled. We can go in like the Mission Impossible team with a glittery plan requiring a thousand moving pieces coming together with split-second precision and create another Bay of Pigs. Or we can play it sweet and simple. Which will it be? Frank had been slouching in a chair off to one side, staring at the ceiling. Don't look at me, he said. I'm hands off this operation. The only reason I'm sitting here is so I won't look too stupid in front of my superiors if you three jokers screw up. Gabe cleared his throat. We were thinking the best way would be two men, a reliable check driver and a Volvo in good repair, two spare tires and a can of gas in the trunk, a semi-automatic pistol and a clip beneath the dash in case things go haywire. Our man walks in one door, guides the package out another, they get in the car, Next thing Sokolov knows, he's in Radio City Music Hall watching the Rockettes. Turning to Josh, Alvarez said, That the way you see it too? Sir, it is. Alvarez slammed his hands together. Then we are all on the same page. Now, let's get down to brass tacks. Gabe and Josh had put together a plan that they thought was tight. By the time Dominic was done with it, a drill sergeant could have bounced a dime off its surface and nodded in grim approval. Jingoist or not, Dominic knew his stuff. They were just wrapping things up when there came a knock at the door, and Frank's secretary entered with a tray carrying four cups of coffee, a sugar bowl, and a pitcher of milk. When the door closed after her, Dominic whistled softly. Now that's what a secretary ought to look like. Red lipstick and a tight skirt. None of this liber nonsense. Look, but don't touch, Frank growled. No intra-office fraternization while I'm in charge. Understand? It degrades morale. Message received, sir, Alvarez said, loud and clear. Still, a man can dream. America is the land of dreams, after all. When the coffee was done, Frank dismissed everybody with... Good work, all of you. Which, coming from him, was unexpectedly high praise. Gabe, he added, you stay behind. When the others had left, Frank leaned back against the front of his desk, a gesture far too casual to be anything but premeditated. 
What's your feel, Franchises? Cautiously, Gabe replied, I am beginning to feel decidedly upbeat about this operation. Frank took his cigarette out of his mouth, glowered at it as if it were something distasteful, and laid it aside in an ashtray. I like you, Pritchard. You remind me of a guy in my platoon in Korea. Name of Stinky. Good kid. Probably deserved better than the nickname we gave him, but what the hell. We were in the ass end of nowhere, in the ruins of what used to be a village, and the chinks had us pinned down. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Couldn't even see the enemy. We were firing blind. Then they stopped shooting at us. Sometimes they'd do that, hoping to trick you into standing up. Ten minutes went by, maybe twenty. You have no idea how slowly time can pass under such conditions. Thirty minutes in, by my guess, Stinky raised himself up on his elbows, gave me that big, goofy, shit-eating grin of his, and said, I'm pretty sure they're gone, sir. Which is when a bullet ripped through his skull. Frank sighed, stood, picked up his cigarette. Don't get cocky. I don't want to wind up with your brains spattered across my face. Magnus was in his usual booth in Bar Vodnar when General Butkovsky strode in looking stern and excited, as men tend to be when they get their first taste of spycraft. Assuming all had gone according to plan, just minutes ago, the general had received a telephone call from Tatiana Morozova, promising to share information of the greatest importance. Without actually having said so, she would have presented herself as an ambitious underling with something juicy on her boss. Budkovsky would have tried to talk her into coming to his hotel, of course. She would have insisted that would not be safe. Finally, they would have settled upon this ostensibly neutral setting. By the way he held himself, the general was carrying heat. It was astonishing how the least whiff of tradecraft turned grown men, even war veterans, into little boys again, avid to shoot dead every Apache in the playground. General, Magnus said, come sit with me. Bukowski looked carefully around the bar. Then, face stony, he slid into the booth opposite Magnus. You'll know me then. Beyond the obvious, that your Soviet military of command rank served in World War II and are currently in Prague as a member of the intelligence community, I have not the slightest idea. My name is Magnus Hawkinson, by the way. A hint of a smirk materialized on the general's face. You know my methods, Watson. I have the posture of a military man, and I flatter myself the air of authority that befits my rank. My nationality is written on my face, ergo I am Soviet. Given my age, I naturally served in the Great Patriotic War, what Russian did not. But what's this about the intelligence community? I'm in it myself. I know the type. Magnus did not mention the gold and steel Rolex peeking out from the general's sleeve. Expensive, obvious, and just a trifle vulgar. The man wearing such a thing would consider himself very important indeed. And other than the IC, what was there in Prague to draw such a personage? 
Anyway, Tanya had told him all he needed to know about the general. Also, you are in a spy bar. I am? Burkovsky looked about the place with new interest. You are. Your Cold War is being fought in a gentlemanly manner. You share a watering spot with your enemy. Perhaps you even nod to him as you enter the room. When I was in the Irish Republican Army, we played a rougher game. There were Catholic bars and Protestant bars. You knew which ones you belonged in and which were worth your life to enter. Once, I was sent to Derry. London Derry, you mean. You see? If we were in Derry, the name you use for the city depends on which side of the struggle you're on. You would have just signed your death warrant. A couple of boys would leave their stools at the bar, take you by the arms, and frog march you outside. There'd be a gunshot, a phone call later, somebody would drive up with a car to take away the body. The boys would return to their drinks, and when the British Army came by the next day, asking questions, it would turn out that nobody had seen a thing. That's how you fight a guerrilla war. Like Mao said, the people are the ocean in which the revolutionary swims. But I started to tell you about the time I was sent to Derry. There was an informer there who had been responsible for the arrests of three good men, and nobody knew who it was. So I, though the general listened with an air of open skepticism, Magnus knew that inwardly he was mesmerized. Soviet spooks all speculated about what they might have been and done in the days of the Russian Revolution, had they only been born earlier. Give them a glimpse of the real thing, of desperate deeds performed under the loosest of supervision, and their fantasies rose up within them to glaze their eyes and drown out all coherent thought. When the story was done and had drawn a roar of laughter from the general, it was a genuinely funny tale, if a little gruesome around the edges, Magnus lifted an arm to catch the eye of the bartender. Jordan, vodka and a plate of bread for my friend. His two rules for getting along in the world were learn the bartender's name and tip well. Time now for the change-up. When the Six-Day War began, I was attached as an observer to the Jerusalem Brigade, which meant that I wasn't supposed to so much as touch a weapon. But guess what? If you grab a rifle in the heat of battle and start firing, nobody complains. The appeal of a story from behind the Israeli lines was that it gave the general the illusion of insight into the thinking of the other side. Not that Magnus had any such insight to peddle, but he needed to keep Bukowski's attention, which this particular anecdote did easily. You were an observer. For whom? Magnus tapped a new Marlboro from its box and lit it with the coal of the old one. <laughs> that would be telling. Ah, thank you, Jordan. He took command of the bottle and poured a shot for his guest. Zaza Drovi. Bukowski downed the shot and pinched up a bit of bread to follow it with. Gorosho Poshla. Magnus asked politely, and Bukowski nodded. It was then that Tanya entered the bar. She froze. Magnus had to admire her skill. She feigned shock as well as anyone he'd ever seen, and he had known a great many inherently deceitful people in his time. Gesturing with his cigarette, Magnus said, looks like your girlfriend isn't happy about something. My, twisting around in his chair, 
General Bukowski was just in time to see Tanya's face shift from shock to anger. She spun around and fled to the street. Bukowski went lumbering after her with Magnus at his elbow, unobtrusively hurrying him along, prepared to shove him forward if he hesitated at the door or to grab his arm if he tried to draw his gun. They stepped out of the bar together and into a barrage of flashbulbs. By the time Bukowski was done blinking, the car containing the photographer had roared into the night. Tanya was nowhere to be seen. You'd better go home and get some sleep, General, Magnus said. I have a feeling that tomorrow is going to be a long day for you. I like a story that will take me to extremes. And nothing says extreme quite like The Last City, a new Wondery podcast available now. Set in 2072, the city of Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image, which, given its promise of being a miraculous green haven in a climate-ravaged world, shouldn't be too hard to sell, but things are not always as perfect and shiny as we'd like to believe. When she stumbles upon a dark secret that could lead to the downfall of Pura's existence if revealed, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Prague after midnight was an unlit necropolis of empty streets. But from the heatless, unlit apartment that was maintained by the KGB precisely because it had a good view of the only hotel in Prague, suitable for foreigners who might require surveillance, Tanya could see that the light was on in General Bukowski's room. Evidently, he was finding sleep elusive. Doubtless, the enigmatic encounter at the bar it set his brain a whirl with speculation and worry. It was time to make his day worse. There was a live telephone line in the room, but no phone. No matter. Tanya had brought her own. With pliers and gaffer tape, she swiftly spliced it in. Then she dialed the same number she had called earlier, when she had presented herself as an ambitious and treacherous underling with evidence of misbehavior on Sasha's part. For just the briefest instant, she felt the icy touch of fear. 
Did she really dare threaten a KGB general? She did. In the coldest, most furious voice she could muster, Tanya demanded, What in the name of hell were you doing consorting with the Norwegian? Norwegian? What are you? You couldn't possibly be so stupid as to not know who Madness Hawkinson is. You should have shot them on sight. You're in a Warsaw Pact nation. You could have gotten away with it. Bakovsky made shushing noises. Shh, now you are talking nonsense, comrade. Why should I shoot anyone? Don't you dare call me comrade. It's too late for you. I'm going to save myself. Tanya slammed down the phone. Then she went to the window. Across the way, the general stood motionless, phone in hand. After some time, he put the phone down and slumped into an easy chair. Slowly, his head descended into his hands. Standing in the cold and darkness, Tanya projected herself into that despairing silhouette. By now, it would be obvious to him that he had been played for a fool. The question was, by whom? By Tanya? But she had very carefully asked for nothing. His old friend, Sasha? The bastard was certainly devious enough to have arranged this. But for what reason? Blackmail? So he would go away and leave Sasha in peace? But there were no answers to be had, and every question would raise a dozen more questions in Bukowski's brain. Paranoia would feed upon suspicion, and both would be fed by ignorance. Slowly, Bukowski raised his hands to his head. His entire body shook. The man was weeping. Tanya unspliced the telephone with a smile. Five. Tanya slept late the next morning. She had a leisurely breakfast and then picked up a copy of F.V. Gladkov's Cement, which she had been slogging through for some time, and read the last chapters. Then she considered her options. She could go shopping, or she could do some cleaning. Certainly the apartment needed it. But in the end, she decided to go to the Hermitage show at the National Gallery. She had been in too sour a mood at the opening to enjoy it. And there were paintings on display that were unlikely to ever again leave the Hermitage. It was mid-afternoon before Tanya put in an appearance at the Residentura Vault. Time enough, she judged, for things to have shaken down in her absence. The minute she entered, she could sense that things had returned to normal. The cacophonous mix of clacking typewriters and chattering voices had returned to its familiar rhythm. The undertone of hysteria was gone. Not one of the general's men was visible anywhere. Ekaterina dashed up to clasp Tanya's hands. I don't know how you did it, comrade, but thank you. Her eyes shone. Had she been any happier, she would have smiled. Another typist, mousy little Anya, appeared with a cup of tea in her hands and placed it on Tanya's desk. Tanya gaped at the cup in astonishment. Only Sasha himself possessed sufficient clout to demand that the clerical staff make tea for him, and they despised him for it. But there the cup was, with milk in it too. Then Tanya saw that throughout the vault, the clerical staff had turned their eyes to her, to a woman. They were all silently miming applause. She felt a flash of unfamiliar solidarity and reddened. 
I have no idea what you're talking about. I did nothing. Our oppressor suddenly gathers up his hooligans and leaves. The new rules disappear. Work returns to normal. Yet when you walk in, you show not a flicker of surprise. That tells us all we need to know, Katerina said. Oh, and I should mention that you're wanted. She made a little upward jerk of her head. Up there. Sasha had restored his chessboards and their men to their usual places. They looked contented to be there. His wretched little bonsai was back too. Sit down, he said when Tanya entered. Then, gesturing to the board before him. Give the game a try, just this once. You can have white. Tanya stared at the board long and hard. Despite the offer, or maybe command, she did not sit. Then, finally, she pushed a pawn to F3. Sasha advanced his pawn to E5. Without hesitation, she moved another pawn to G4. Sasha slid his queen through the opening he'd created, across the board to H4, putting Tanya's queen in check. Quizzically, he said, Fool's mate. Congratulations, you win. I see you have your office back. It was the oldest thing, Sasha said. When I came in this morning, General Bukowski was waiting for me. He looked like the very devil. He demanded to see a file on a tall, white-haired master spy known as the Norwegian. Imagine my surprise to discover that such a file existed. Imagine my astonishment to learn that one Magnus Hawkinson, a man I never heard of before today, is considered to be the most dangerous terrorist in all Europe. He's allied with MI6, the CIA, and Mossad, and he's the mastermind behind half the wars of oppression in Africa. Tanya said nothing. The specimen sheet for her typewriter was on file, but she had long ago swapped it for that of a machine in the Polish trade mission. Whatever he suspected, Sasha could not be sure of her hand in it. Wojkowski had me stand before him like a schoolboy while he read the file. Then he asked for the other photos. I knew my answer would displease him, but having no idea whatsoever what he was talking about, I told him there were none. What else might I have done? What would you have done in my place? Sasha shook his head heavily, like a weary buffalo. When I said that, he gave me a look that froze my blood. I fear that Boris Petrovich and I are no longer friends. Then, without saying another word, he swept up all his people and fled. Back to Moscow, I presume. When Tanya still said nothing, Sasha asked, do I want to know the details? No. Ah, little Tanya, more and more I am convinced that you would make an excellent chess player, if only you'd apply yourself to it. Tanya locked eyes with her superior. Let the bastard experience a touch of fear himself for a change. Let him think twice before breaking into her apartment again and stealing what was hers. With cold menace, she said, I don't play games. The only time Tanya ever wished she could paint was when she stood on the Charles Bridge, savoring the silence of dawn. 
Every visit was different, and each was beautiful in its own way. Today, silvery mists rose from the frozen river as the sky above the horizon slowly turned palest yellow. The feet of the buildings in the old town were as darkly shadowed as the bridge itself, but their upper stories rose into the sunlight to turn eggshell white, and the apricot glow of their tiled rooftops made her soul soar. She came here when she could, though it grew increasingly hard to find the time, to clasp hands with something vital to which she could not put a name. Midway across the bridge, Tanya became aware a splash of red on the parapet ahead of her. Blood? No. It was a rose. As she drew closer, Tanya saw that a dark rectangle of duct tape held the rose to the stone so a breeze would not blow it away. Closer still, she saw that someone had leaned a hand on the parapet to melt away the thin skim of ice covering it to give the tape purchase. Pritchard had been here, and not all that long ago. For a moment, she felt an unreasoning outrage at this breach of her privacy. Peeling off her gloves, she ripped away the tape and dropped it onto the Voltava. Almost, she threw the rose after it. Was this supposed to be a gesture of thanks? Or was the American boasting that he was not the incompetent he seemed, but capable of ferreting out her most private and cherished habits? Or could it be a threat, a reminder that he could reach into her life any time he so desired? Did she need to take precautions against him? Finally, Tanya decided that this was nothing more than a classic tradecraft. The American was messing with her mind, trying to make her paranoid, doing his best to throw her off her game. She scowled down at the red blossom. Again, she felt the urge to fling it as far from herself as she could. In the end, however, Tanya decided not to throw the rose into the cold waters. Instead, she lifted it to her nose and inhaled. Even in the cold winter air, its perfume was lush and rich. Briefly, though she knew that it was pointless, for tomorrow would necessarily bring new disasters to which she might or might not be equal. Tanya smiled. You're listening to The Witch You Came In From The Cold, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
The Witch Who Came In From The Cold is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Lindsay Smith, Cassandra Rose Clark, Ian Tregellis, and Michael Swanwick. Performed by Christine Lakin and John Glushevich. Directed by Dennis Keo. Produced by Julian Yap and Marco Palmieri. Associate Producers, Corey Barton and Devin Shepard. Executive Produced by Molly Barton. Audio Production by Literati Audio. Audio Editing by Evan Arnett and Fred Koch. Mixing and Mastering by Jeremy Wesley. Original Music by Katherine Anderson. Find more shows like The Witch Who Came In From The Cold by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. 